Turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Uh, I had to look back. I felt like it was just a year or 18 months ago that we did a series called Misunderstood. Misunderstood, uh, where we took 10 of the most often misunderstood, misinterpreted, misapplied, misconstrued verses in Scripture, and we tried to straighten those out. Uh, There were some glaring omissions uh, in that series, and this was one of them. Uh, to which I've been reminded over the last three years it's been. That was the fall of 2015 we did that series. Uh, And so, praise God, many of you weren't here at that time. Not that you weren't here then, praise God, but that you're here now. Got to make sure we don't misconstrue and misunderstand that one. right. Uh, And so that was back in the fall of 2015. We just moved in. Uh, to this building uh, three years ago that fall, and we were working on it over the summer. And so that was uh, one of the first series we did here. And so I want to go back over the next couple, three weeks or so uh, and pick up two or three or four of the passages or verses that we didn't do then and just kind of add them on to the end of the series there. And so we have in front of us today, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I'll read it to you out of the NAS version, New American Standard. Uh, It's a verse that many of us know very well. Many of us probably have it memorized, if nothing else, because we see it so often. It says there, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Or oftentimes you'll see that, to give you a hope and a future. And so as we look at this this morning, we want to look at three things, basically. How is this verse commonly understood or misunderstood and misused? We'll do that briefly. What does this verse say? Because we want to understand what this verse says and what it's teaching, so that then we can thirdly uh, talk about how we can correctly understand or use and apply this verse to our lives today. And so, without much further ado, let's jump into that together. And so, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, how is this word, this verse, uh, most often misunderstood? Uh, Went... Um, last night just to get a sense of this. You see this verse everywhere, don't you? On everything, right? So I thought, I'm going to go to Mardell.com and I'm going to look up Jeremiah 29, 11 and just see how, what it, what shows up. You get almost a hundred hits back You have everything there from birthday, encouragement, thinking of you, cards, bookmarks, Bible covers. There's the plans I have for you, children's Bible. Um, Desktop plaques, wall plaques, wall art, wall crosses, journals, jewelry, bracelets, necklaces, rings galore, t-shirts, Coffee mugs, pens, 
key rings, money clips, silicone wristbands. So you can basically completely outfit your life. Who needs Cabela's? Right. You can just get Jeremiah 29:11 everywhere. Right? But as we are putting that verse out there all over the place, everywhere, what is it that we are most often communicating? What is it we're most often understanding uh, when we do that? Uh, It would be something like this, I think, that when things are difficult for you, when we're suffering in some way in life, here's a promise from God that you can hold on to. Does that sound about right? When life gets really tough, here's a promise from God's Word that you can hold on to, that God is going to work out everything for me soon in some way that seems good to me, uh, in a way most often in our minds when we are using this verse this way that I would wish for it to work out uh, in a manner that takes the suffering, the difficulties, the trials, the travails of life, whatever they are at that time, and removes those and gives to me peace and comfort and rest and relief, prosperity, happiness, or some version of that. Would you say that's commonly the way that verse is shared and applied and understood? Well, Is that really uh, what this verse is teaching? Is that really what this verse says then becomes a question. So what does it say? What does this verse say? Does it say that or does it say something else? And I'll preface this by saying God's done a whole lot of great work in my life and my heart through bad theology. Or theology from the wrong verse, I'll put it that way from poor interpretation of Scripture on my part, that God has still wonderfully, graciously, mercifully worked good things in my heart. And so uh, as we work through this, let's not be ungracious in our treatment of folks, but let's do try to straighten out our understanding of this text so that maybe... Uh, we don't leave in our minds and the minds of others something that would be a cause for stumbling in faith later on when the way this text is understood doesn't come maybe to pass for them. So what does this verse say? So to begin working that out, let's first put this verse within its broad context Um, I enjoy this part of Bible study methods and just study and putting things in their context. Uh, We have this verse from the book of Jeremiah. It comes through the pen of Baruch, his secretary or his writer, uh, who wrote down what he uh, was receiving from the Lord. Jeremiah receives his call to the ministry 627 B.C., 626 maybe, we date it right there, 627, 626. And in the history of Israel, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, now that puts us after the Exodus, 
It puts us after entrance into Canaan. That puts us after uh, the period of Judges and then after Samuel and uh, Saul and then David and Solomon. That period of Saul and David and Solomon, we would call the United Monarchy. And you know that under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom split. And then the northern kingdom we call Israel, and that's the northern ten tribes of Israel. And then the southern kingdom, which is Judah and Benjamin, we call Judah from that time on. We're even past the end of the northern kingdom. In 722 B.C., uh, Assyria had come and conquered the northern kingdom and carried Israel off into uh, exile and dispersed them among the nations. And so we're after that. All that's left now is Judah. Judah, which is Judah and Benjamin there. So we're very near now also the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. So we're at 627 B.C. that Jeremiah receives his call. Uh, In 612, 609 B.C., Assyria was the greatest empire north of Israel, and they give way to Babylon. And Babylon begins to fight with Egypt, and Israel's caught between a rock and a hard place. They're caught between these warring factions, these warring powers, and they're a key territory on the king's highway on the uh, western side of the Fertile Crescent. It's an area that trade runs through, and so you want to control that area. There's a lot of taxation, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of wealth that comes from controlling that thoroughfare that runs there through uh, Israel. God had strategically placed that nation there. Uh, We find out, and we know from the beginning of this book, that Jeremiah is the son of Hilkiah. Hilkiah was the high priest who was serving when Josiah became king. You remember that story? It's the one that we love uh, to tell our children, right? Uh, There was Hezekiah, who was a good king in the eyes of the Lord. And then there was his son. Remember his name? Manasseh. How did Manasseh do? He did really poorly. He, in fact, is one of the, he's the most wicked king to date in Israel. And then Ammon, his son, comes on the scene and tries to do everything he can to outdo Manasseh. And then Josiah comes uh, to the throne, and he comes to the throne at the age of eight, we find out. Uh, In the eighth year of his reign, when he was 16, we know from 2 Chronicles 34, verse 3, that Josiah began to seek the Lord. And then in that same verse, it says in the 12th year of his reign, when he was about 20 years old, he begins to purge idolatry from the nation. He starts to take down uh, the high places, they were called, around the nation where idol worship would occur. And then in the, 20, in the 18th year of his reign, when he's 26 years old, he begins to repair and restore the temple. And you remember what happens. Under Manasseh and Ammon, things had gotten so dark, they had walked so hard away from God that they didn't even have the book of the law of God in their hands. Someone had secreted a copy of that under the altar in the temple. And as they're repairing and restoring the temple, they find, Hilkiah finds the book of the law of God. 
It may have been Deuteronomy from some of the things that we find in the book of Jeremiah, some of the quotes and the way he phrases some things. It may have been the book of Deuteronomy, the second law, the second giving of the law from God to Israel. And so that book is then read to Josiah and Josiah hearing it realizes he already knew because he's taken down the high places. Israel's in rebellion, but now he knows the extent of their rebellion and he falls down in repentance. And God is telling Israel throughout the book of Jeremiah through Jeremiah as Jeremiah ministers to the nation of Israel under Josiah and under his sons that he's going to judge Israel's rebellion. But because of Josiah's repentance and then the reforms and the revival that he leads in the nation, God says that Josiah, you will go to the grave in peace. You won't see the judgment. It will come after you. And so then you get all these king's names that you love to learn and try to memorize how to spell right at the end of Judah, right? Josiah's son Jehoahaz comes to the throne and then he's deposed and all this fighting between Babylon and Egypt. And as these kings take one side and then the other, you have Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, rules for a bit. He's deposed. Then you get Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, and he's deposed. And then Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachim. How's that for being really different in names? He is there for all of like three months, and then he's ousted. And then we get to somebody that we can remember a little better, Zedekiah, and he's the last king. Now, he's not another son. Uh, He's not another son of Jehoiakim, but he's Josiah's third son now to rule. And so he's on the throne. And through all of this shifting of power, you get three deportations in the nation of Israel, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and then 586 B.C. There are whole portions of the population that were sent into exile and dispersed throughout the empire. What I find really interesting and very instructive biblically about that history is that Israel is about, Jeremiah is telling the nation God is going to judge and you're going to go into the uh, Babylonian empire. The first Babylonian king, the first king of the Babylonian empire was crowned 626 BC. When did Jeremiah receive his call to the ministry as the prophet of the Lord? 627, 626 B.C. God tells Jeremiah, I knew you in your mother's womb. And God appoints Jeremiah even as, or maybe slightly before, that he sets up the first king of the empire that he's going to judge the nation of Israel with. And then he starts telling Israel, they're coming and I'm going to judge you. And so that gives you some of the broader context of this passage. But let's put this now in its more immediate 
context. So we're in the book of Jeremiah. We're in a section within the book of Jeremiah from uh, chapter 25 to 29, where God is describing clearly and in detail and several times the impending Babylonian exile, that Babylon is coming. God will judge. The nation of Israel is going to be uh, devastated and left a devastation, and they're going to go into exile. And so God is speaking through Jeremiah saying, even now, should you repent as a nation, I will forestall this judgment. But Judah does not listen. And so God is going to send Judah into a Babylonian exile for 70 years, he says. So when you come to chapter 29, then just look up towards the top of the chapter there from where you are. Uh, He says there, Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So we have what Jeremiah is writing, and it's being sent to those now already in exile. So one or two or three of those exiles in 605, 597, and 586 have already occurred. When we read verse 2, we find out that we're at least past the 597 exile. Because we know that he says parenthetically here, this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. We know from other texts that that's the 597 uh, deportation. And so we're later now than 597. We're somewhere between then and 586, presumably. Drop down to verse 4, and God says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then he goes on to tell them, basically, build houses, plant gardens, eat produce, take wives, become fathers, have families, uh, seek the welfare of the cities and the nations there that I sent you to. Because in its welfare, you'll have welfare. That's an instructive word for today, isn't it? For a Christian anywhere in the world. Uh, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, verse 8, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams which they dream. Right in uh, chapter 28, there was Hananiah the prophet who took the yoke that was a symbol of God's judgment from Jeremiah's net. Jeremiah was known for doing uh, physical symbols to depict the judgment of God that's going to come. Some of them were kind of gross, if you remember. Uh, Go read Jeremiah. That poor guy was put through a lot. Um, And Hananiah breaks the yoke from him uh, and says, this uh, dispersion or exile is only going to be two years. And God says, don't, don't listen to these false prophets. I didn't see them. Verse 10, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And then you get to verse chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future 
and a hope. And so what is this verse saying? Uh, the first thing is that this is not a verse of promise. And we said, how is this verse so often used? It's used as a promise of God to hang on to. This verse isn't a verse of promise. Uh, just grammatically speaking, when you start to read this verse, what's the first word in your Bible? For. Right? What is that a word of? That's a conjunction. And when you see for, that is a reason, a rationale, it's an explanation. It's not a promise. God here in verse 11 isn't given a promise. He's given the basis or the reasoning or the rationale or the explanation for the promise that was in not verse 11, but where? Verse 10. Verse 10 is the promise. There's timing to this promise in verse 10. When 70 years have been completed, how long is the exile or the dispersion going to be for the nation of Israel? For Judah, it's going to be 70 years. Most people would date that from the first deportation, 605 B.C. When 70 years have been completed, that's a temporal or a timing phrase there, then there's the promise. The promise is, I will visit you and I will fulfill my good word to you. The promise is, after 70 years of exile... I will visit you and I will be faithful to the promise I made, which was to do what? To bring you back to this place. You could track this idea all the way back to Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30. And there in the beginning of chapter 30, God has already said, if you in previous chapters there in Deuteronomy, if you obey me, You'll be fruitful in the land. You will prosper. Your herds will prosper. Your families will prosper. Things will be well for you. But if you don't obey me, chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, I will make your land a devastation. And I will send you into exile until the time comes that you repent and return to me, your God. And then I will be your God and you will be my people. And so God has made this promise in this book, the Jeremiah, but it's simply the promise that they found most likely in the book of the law, that because of their rebellion, God is saying now, just like I said then, you will be judged and you will be dispersed, but just like I said then, you will be regathered and returned. When? Seventy years after uh, you have been deported or exiled. I will promise I visit you and fulfill my good word to you. And so 2911 is not a promise. It's an explanation. And so that's one of the first things that we need to know. And then as we keep reading this, for I know the plans that I have for you, he says. I know the plans that I have for you. The word there for plans is uh, thoughts. Uh, but it's thoughts of planning or devising, that it's setting up a series of events. Uh, it's, these, it's things that God has determined will come to pass. I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place because I know the plans that I still have for you. I'm not done with you. There are things that I have promised to 
you, Israel, and things that I have promised that will come through you, Israel, that I'm not done doing it. And so I know the plans that I have for you. And when you get to this you there, here's where our uh, practice of interpreting Scripture according to uh, radical American individualism comes to bear, right? Uh, that we always, let's see if I can get this right, Nikki, she's my math person. We almost always read Scripture according to the distributive property of math. Does that sound right? She's going, I don't know yet. I need more explanation. So if I get this right, right? Where that's like, you know, you take whatever's true of the whole and it's true of all the parts. Sort of. She says, yeah, that's good enough, she says. Right? And so we see you right there and we say, that means who? Me. Right? And so I know the plans I have for you, we read. For me, God says. But that's not what he's saying here. The you, there is a second plural you. It's you all. It's you-ins, as we say in Texas. Right? I know the plans I have for you-ins, for all of you as the nation of Israel. Now, whatever is going to be true of the nation is going to be true of the individuals, but not primarily the individuals, but of the individuals as a part of the nation. That's what God is doing. This is a promise to Israel, which divorces us a little bit from this text. And it should, that we have some distance from this text. God is speaking a promise here and explaining that promise to the nation of Israel in a very particular time in their history in a very particular set of circumstances. And I know the plans that I have for you, Israel, Judah, declares the Lord. He says, the plans not for calamity or wickedness or deportation or exile or suffering or slavery or want, but plans for some of you will have welfare there. Some of you have uh, wholeness, maybe plans for you to prosper, right? Prosperity there uh, to give you a hope and a future. And that word there for welfare, we've talked about this one before. It's such a beautiful word. It's such a full word. It's the word shalom. Uh, it's a word that if you were in Israel and you just were passing someone on the street, you might say shalom. And they'd say back shalom. All right, and it's like saying, uh, hey, hope you're having a good day. Have a good day. Hope everything's good with you. But it means so much more than that. It, it can be tossed around so easily. Shalom. But it, it's a word that means, a good translation is wholeness. But it's a word, it's a, it talks about the state of wholeness. Uh, it talks about being a, in a state in which all of the parts of something are correctly aligned and related. And here, particularly when it's talking about us and our relationship with God, it's talking about all the parts of our lives, our minds, our hearts, our souls, being uh, rightly aligned to who God is and what He is and His holiness and what He has said is right and good and just for us. And so it's a state of holiness. It's a state of righteousness. It's a state of uh, obedience. It'd be a state of service or worship 
to God. And so we, we might remember that we just finished Ephesians 4, and there at the end of that text, uh, verses 1 through 16, that uh, God having shaped us, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, in His gracious and merciful work in the gospel for us, that the outworking of that is that all of us from Christ as each part uh, is working according uh, to uh, its place within the body. We are speaking truth to one another in love so that we might what grow up in Christ in all aspects, every single facet of who we are, that we might grow up into the fullness of the maturity of Jesus Christ. We might look like Him. That's shalom. God has plans, He says, for their shalom, for their welfare, their wholeness, not for wickedness or calamity. Plans to give them a hope and a future. And so the question then becomes, what is that future and that hope? Is that a a general thing? Is that something that's very soon in their lives? Is he talking primarily about when the 70 years is ended? Or is he talking about something else? Can we know what the future and the hope are? And I think we can just when you keep reading the context here and you go past verse 11, he says, then that's a temporal marker. In other words, it refers to you to a specific point in time. Then when After the 70 years, when I fulfilled my promise, when I brought you back to the place that I scattered you from, then, then you will uh, call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. And so the first thing we find about this future, this hope, is that it's a future of repentance. It's a future of repentance. Verse 12 and 13, remember where Israel, Judah, has just been. They have gone far from the Lord. They have rejected God. They have rebelled utterly against God, except for a brief period of reform under Josiah. They practiced the darkest wickedness for a long time. Then, after the exile, because of the exile, you will repent. You will call upon me. You will not stay far from me. You will come and pray to me. You will seek me and you will find me. And when you search for me with all your heart, that's not rejection of God. Now that's Deuteronomy 6, that you would love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. All right? The God alone is God. Listen, O Israel. There's one God, the Shema. And they will return from idolatry to worship Him. So it's a future of repentance. It's a reversal of their rebellion. And it's a, a future of restoration then and reconciliation. God is a faithful God. And every time that we return to Him in genuine repentance of heart, calling upon Him, coming before Him, praying to Him, seeking Him, searching for Him with all our hearts, 
that God, God will be found. He says, you'll seek me and you will find me. I will listen to you. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you back and I will bring you back and restore you to the place from where I dispersed you from and sent you into exile. So it's a future of repentance and it's a future of restoration or reconciliation. It's a future also of repentance and reconciliation that's through God's Messiah. There's an immediacy to this. But even as God says, I'll restore you, remember he says, I know the plans I have for you. And they're greater plans. They're farther reaching plans than just getting you out of Babylon and bringing you back to Israel. There's more I have said that I would accomplish through you. Genesis 3.15, that one will come to crush the head of the serpent and make restitution for sin. Abraham, you will be a blessing. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There will be a seed. To David, 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, that you will have an everlasting kingdom. Not that you will be everlasting, but there will be someone of your descendants whose throne will be established before God forever. And his kingdom will be everlasting. It won't end in front of God. That there's uh, this promise God has made to bring Messiah to the nations through the nation of Israel. So if you just keep reading through this section of Jeremiah, you jump into chapter 30, you go to verse 3. You hear God, he's still talking about what the promise was. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I'll bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they will possess it. You skip down to verse 8. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. And so this this exile and this slavery and the servitude will end. And when that ends, they shall serve the Lord their God. And David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now we're right around 600 BC. David was back there around 1000 BC, somewhere there. He's 400 years or more before this time. So you can't literally expect to come back and serve David unless you're looking for the one that was to come through David, who is the Messiah, the Davidic king. And so you will no longer serve these taskmasters, but you will serve the Lord, your God, and David, their king, the Messiah, whom I will raise up for them. Verse 8 and verse 9. Go down to verse 15, uh, and we'll... uh, Drop this in there. Uh, A voice, he says, uh, chapter 31, verse 15. We'll move another chapter over as God continues to talk through Jeremiah about this to Israel. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That this is a part of the timing of knowing when the full fruition of the plans of God is coming to pass. 
And do you remember where this comes back in the New Testament? It's Matthew chapter 2, verse 17. It's after Christ is born. It's after the kings, not three kings. Remember, kids? It's not three kings. They brought three gifts. There's more than, there's a bunch of wise men. And they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. I know we sing, we three kings of Orientar. We go look it up. It never says three of them. There's a whole passel of them, as we say here. All right, these kings have come, the magi from the east. How do they know to come? Because the Jews were put into exile in Babylon. Because there was Daniel who searched the scriptures and left the writings. And these magi left over from the Babylonian kingdom and then the Persian kingdom and then the subsequent kingdoms are waiting on the king of kings to come. And when he comes, they come. You remember they come to Herod? Because where do you go looking for a king? At the palace. No, it's not him. And they find out he's in Bethlehem. So they go to Bethlehem. It's probably around two years after Christ has been born because they go there, they prostrate themselves, they give their gifts, and then having been led by the Lord a different direction rather than going back to Herod. Remember, Herod said, hey, come back and tell me when you found him. I want to go fall before him as well. Was he being truthful there, kiddos? No. He's being sneaky, wasn't he? Deceitful. They didn't come back. He figures out he's been duped. And what does he do? He sends men there to kill every young male child under the age of two years old. If we get all of them, it was roughly two years ago that he was born, we're likely to get him. But Joseph and Mary had already been warned in a dream to leave. And so they had gotten up and fled to Egypt and they stayed there till after Herod dies. And when Herod's men come and slay those children, it says there in Matthew 2, chapter 7, or verse 17, then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. This verse, and he quotes it, that a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And so as God is talking about the fulfillment of this future and this hope to Israel and this, the fullness of this passage, he points them to a far future date that we know later from scriptures fulfilled after the birth of Jesus Christ. Some of you are already thinking about it. We're just 15, 21 verses away from another text we love in this same chapter. What is it? As God continues to talk about this, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming. This is how he started this chapter off. Behold, days are coming. And he says it more than once through this chapter. He's still he's talking about when this future, this hope comes. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel. Uh, that's back in verse 27. Let's drop to 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law 
within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people and they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And we remember then Matthew 28, verse 27 and 28 in the upper room as Christ is with his disciples and he takes the cup and he gives thanks at that last Passover. And he he says, drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. This is the beginning of the new covenant that God spoke about here in Jeremiah 31 and following down to 34. That Jesus is the one that brings this to pass. There's a future for you. There's a restoration to the land, yes. And if you're repentant before the Lord, there's going to be a reconciliation in your life, yes. That you're not going to be in slavery, yes. That things will not be as calamitous, yes. But God's not done yet. There's the promise He has yet to bring to pass. And Jesus, the Messiah, is the one that He brings that to pass. And now we still, now we can really connect with this text Not as a promise, but an explanation of God's promise. Has God promised to us to take us out of a place of exile and bring us to a home that He's promised to us? He sure has. First Peter, we're called exiles. This world is not your home. You are now, when you put your faith in Christ, no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but you're put now into the kingdom of the Son. And the world is no longer your home. Glory is. One day to be with the Father. And He has inaugurated or begun or established the coming of that kingdom in Christ, but He hasn't yet consummated or completed that kingdom. The new covenant that's spoken of here in Jeremiah is, has begun to be established. How do we know? The law is being put in our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God, but it's not yet fulfilled. How do we know? Because we still say to our neighbors, know the Lord. Here it says they'll say in that day, they won't say any longer, know the Lord or a brother to his brother. There'll be no more teaching. I'll be out of a job or a ministry, Right? I won't need to do this anymore when this is fulfilled and completed because the law of God will be perfected in the hearts of people and they'll be home in a new heaven and a new earth with God their Father, the glory of God, the light, the sun, the lampstand, and perfected fellowship with one another and perfected fellowship through Christ with God the Father who is eternal and immortal and dwells in unapproachable light. What a day, the old hymn. What a glorious day that will be. That's where we are right now, still. And so when we suffer, and you can turn to 
Romans 8. How do we understand and apply this text today? And we'll close. Jeremiah 29, 11 is the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28 is the New Testament version of Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11. You start there in verse 18. I consider these present sufferings not to be worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Will we suffer? Yes. We will suffer in this life. John 16.33, in the world you have tribulation. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you, he's talking to the Philippian church there, but we can hear this to us too, been granted to you to believe in him and also to suffer for his sake. That we suffer sometimes just for the sake of righteousness or for the sake of Christ. Uh, We suffer sometimes as a part of the proving of our faith to show to us that it's genuine, that God keeps us. We suffer sometimes like Israel does back in Jeremiah because of unruliness. Hebrews 12 Verse 6, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He disciplines us for our good, though, so that we can share in His holiness. So we're going to suffer. But Romans 8, 28, this other passage we love, and we touched on it back then in the Misunderstood series. And we know that for, you could start this for uh, those who love God, Right? For those who love God, not those in rebellion, but those who have come before God, those who are calling upon God, those who are seeking God with all their heart, those who are now repentant before God, for those who love God, we know all things work together for good. What's that good? It's glory. How do we know? Because he says so. We know that all that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, his plans. Do you hear the echo? I know the plans that I have for you, the purpose he has. Those those whom he foreknew, that he knew them from before the foundation of the earth, that he set his love and his care upon them, those he foreknew he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That there's a relationship here to the Messiah so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, God didn't stop there, he called. And those whom he called, he justified or declared innocent by faith in Christ, by God's grace alone. And those whom he justified, he glorified. That's a beautiful statement right there. He speaks of that in the past tense, but it's something that's yet to come. If you're standing here right now, you've, and you've put your faith in Christ, you've been justified or declared innocent in Christ by God's grace through faith. You're being sanctified in Christ. You've not yet been glorified. If you, when you die, you go to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. You're now in the Spirit with God, but you're still not glorified. To be glorified is to once again be body and spirit together and to have a glorified body. That comes at the end of days. That's the good, the ultimate, the perfected good of God. 
Not just that we're justified and now that we're going in Christ, but that one day we'll be like Him and in the presence of God. Something that can only happen through Messiah. And so when we suffer, what do we do? Let's just read and we'll close the end of this passage because it's so good. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or any kind of suffering he's writing? No. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. Understood. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, that it is clear uh, that it's not, uh, it has depths that we cannot plumb, and yet it is also clear, uh, Lord, that you make it known to us by your Spirit, God, that all that is written in it is for our instruction and our edification. God, we would ask, Lord, as we continue to study, as we jump into Bible study methods, as we read and study our Bibles on our own, as we gather together to talk about that which we're studying, life that we're wrestling with, the promises and the scriptures that we're trusting in and applying to life, God, that you would ever increasingly give us clarity and understanding that is right from your word. And God, that we would, in that understanding, truly have wisdom and walk in Christ-likeness. And God, that you would be made known through us, your people, a people whom you are our God. And God, that we are your people, that we look and sound and act and speak those things and the ways that you have called us to be. Lord, strengthen our faith, teach us, convict us, guide us, provide for us, Lord, as we go today and continue to worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen.